your gut is your compass. You already know you feel it in your bones. You will not be satisfied unless you do this thing because that's who you are. You live and die by your gut. Take that chance. There's no such thing as failure. There's only lessons. What is going on, everyone? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 230 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. For today's episode, I am chatting with the chief content officer and co-founder of Together, Jessica Robertson. I am elated for this conversation. It's always fun for me to be able to rap with someone in the industry and not just as a fellow journalist, but as a fellow woman in sports enthusiast. I love that for us. now together. You have definitely seen them on social media. Let me refresh your memory. Together is a brand new media and commerce company. They've got a mission to feature a diverse and inclusive community of game changers, culture shapers, thought leaders, and barrier breakers to say that five times fast. They were founded in 2021 alongside not only Robertson, but a few of the world's top athletes, including Sue Bird, Alex Morgan, Chloe Kim, and Simone Manuel. Maybe, uh, maybe Jess can give me the hookup to get in on some of those conversations. But as Together's chief content officer, Jess has done truly unbelievable work pushing boundaries to promote all the things that are in their mission statement, including inclusivity and visibility for women in sports and her journey to doing this, it did not happen overnight. In today's episode, Jessica gives us some of her backstory, talking to me about what it was like to grow up in a small town and make the move to New York to follow her dream of, at the time, being a music journalist. We chat about what that chapter of her career was like, what it felt like to be one of the only women in her space, and the evolution of transitioning from music to sports. Jessica shed some insight into the creation of Together, what those first meetings were like. We talk about what it is like for her to constantly be surrounded by so many impressively talented, strong women, both in sport and beyond, and what she hopes for the future of coverage for women's sports, what we can expect moving forward, and how she herself plans to be a part of the conversation. I really, really appreciated Jess for opening up with me, not only about her career path, but also about what it was like for her as a gay woman coming up, like I said, in a small town, transitioning to different markets, New York and now LA, and finally feeling as though she herself has found a community that embraces her for who she is, and she couldn't feel more fortunate. If you're not doing so yet, make sure you're following together and also make sure you are following Hurdle over at Hurdle Podcast on social. I am at Emily Abadi. And with that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling.
Today, I am sitting down with Jess Robertson. She is the co-founder and chief content officer for Together. How are you doing today, Jess? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, I'm trying to find the right word here. I am excited to sit down with someone who has such an extensive background as a journalist, as a fellow journalist, because I feel like we're going to geek out a little bit together. I love that. I, storyteller to storyteller. Those are my favorite conversations. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, thanks so much for the time today. Amped to have you here. And first and foremost, I mean, we have to right off the bat address a commonality between the two of us, which is that you started out your career in a completely different sector than women's sports and storytelling. So can you tell me a little bit about the decision to go from music-based content to this kind of content? Such a great question. I, I've i always loved music and sports. Those are two of my biggest passions in life. I was an athlete. Um, I also studied music business and my minor was journalism. And I thought at some point I would work at a record label and bring great music to the world as an A&R person. Um, but I didn't love the business of it at all, but I still loved the artistry and the impact that music can have on culture um, and the stories behind the music that's made. So uh, even though I worked in music as a music journalist, I still identify as a storyteller and I see sort of my lane kind of similar in sports in that I think sports are a prism for culture as is music and sports move culture forward. When we think about sort of icons of culture who have greatly impacted it and made an impact on this world, on politics, on communities, marginalized communities and people. It's athletes and musicians. I think about that all the time. And I think about their role uh, and the responsibility that they have as sort of icons of culture. Um, so even though I'm in sports now, but I was in music before, I'm still a storyteller and I still get to work with incredible people who are impacting the world that we live in. For sure, for sure. Now, to give some context, I was writing about everything from God, food and holiday and news and the royals to then making the decision to go into writing and editing content about health, wellness, and fitness full time uh, a while back now, before way before the hurdle chapter. You made this pivot in 2015. I'd be curious if when you made the pivot, you had any reservations, despite knowing that maybe the industry made you feel some kind of way, were you still hesitant to drift away from this music content space? I really wasn't. And the reason I say that is because I found that in my sort of day-to-day life, personal life, I was talking about sports more. I'm watching mm. more sports. I'm going to more sporting events. I was a lifelong athlete. I still compete today um, in rec leagues or, you know, I've been taking up boxing and I'm going to have an amateur fight. Like I just, I'm, I've Stop. Very, I, it's true. It's so true. <laughs> I hope oh, we'll unpack that shortly. <laughs> yeah. Just please don't tell my mother. So I, I just found that like my, in my personal life, my passion for this space was increasing and my passion for music had changed. Not that it was lessened, it just had changed. And I've been in the music industry for almost 12 plus years at that point. Um, it's a young person's industry um, to be able to taste, make and influence culture the way that I used to and or wanted to do. Um, 
that had changed my ability to do that. And I didn't want to be going to shows and clubs at, you know, late at <laughs> night and writing all night and then being up the next day and, you know, running a consumer facing brand. It was just, a, it's a different world, the older that you get and the longer you've been in it. And, but my personal passion had really swelled around sports. And in 2014, I vividly remember I was working in music and I read a story by Michael Carter Williams on the Players Tribune. The Players Tribune had just launched in October 2014. That's Derek Jeter's athlete-led media company. And I felt like I was in this really intimate, beautiful storytelling experience because it was through his voice, his words. It felt like I was sitting in a bar next to him and someone was telling me a really intimate story about something that I would have had a thousand questions on and through his own POV, which felt like he was free to express, um, was telling me something I never would have heard through a traditional means. And it felt like a really interesting landscape shift in content period, forget sports or music. It like We've seen the democratization happening in digital, the rise of blogging in the early aughts to social media and the insertion of I, and I thought just as a storyteller, like, wow, what amazing impact you could have and what really rich stories you could tell if you sat with your subject and you allowed them to be vulnerable in a safe space where ultimately they had some version of control over what their personal story is, which they should. And I met the co-founder and president of the Players Tribune, Jamie Musler, shortly after that and said, this is where I wanna be. I believe in this type of storytelling. I see what you're doing and I think we can impact the world, especially through sport. And I was hired within maybe 24 hours and it was one of the most transformative experiences of my life. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. I, I hear you on the, I just wasn't in the place in my life anymore where I wanted to be out late <laughs> doing the all-nighter. I think we all in, uh, regardless of whatever industry you're in, you know, we go through these phases where we put in the time. And I'm sure that in the position that you're in now, you have an opportunity often to offer advice about getting through maybe those earlier super transformative years for anyone who could be interested in making a little bit of a career pivot. You clearly weren't afraid to change the plan, what do you say to them? Oh, I think there's a couple of answers to that. Number one is your gut is your compass. I firmly believe that if, if I didn't feel such conviction and passion over sport as a potential lane for me, but in particular, the types of storytelling I wanted to do within sport, I think I would have had more reservations. If I was like, oh, I just want to get into sports, but what does that look like? I would be a little more nervous. I actually had something made visible to me that gave me a path, and that happened to be fortunate timing. Um, I, I, I couldn't imagine working at a place like ESPN, not that I don't like ESPN. It's just it was too traditional for me. I wanted something new and innovative that could impact the way we tell stories, and it happened to be visible to me. So it helped um, the transition be a little bit more comfortable because I could see it. So one, listen to your gut. Your, it is your compass. Um, if you're feeling something, it's probably for a reason. But the second is do your homework and know the people that are in that space and ask them questions, like make those connections. Because if you don't have a path and you don't have that network, which for many reasons, some of us don't, some of us are more advantaged than others. I 
I think if I had not had that path visible to me, and I also didn't make that connection with the president of the company and know how to pitch what I wanted to pitch, I don't know that I would be in this position. So it's know what you're feeling and why you're feeling it is probably real and look to lay a path to get yourself there. And oftentimes that path is through people. So make those connections make those connections. That path is through people. I also love the tidbit about not being afraid or above, let's say, asking questions, right? Because there's always that opportunity to learn and we learn through listening, which is clearly something that you had a strong awareness of at this point in your career. Listening makes you an amazing storyteller. I, I don't know how you tell stories if you're not listening to people, if you're not curious to know more about them and their life experiences shared or different from yours. If you don't listen with intent and also with empathy, those two things, those three things actually are really, really critical. Along with curiosity, I'm, I am this way in my work, but I am also very much this person in my personal life. I love talking to people and knowing people and making people feel seen. And I don't know where that comes from because it's not like I was an extrovert as a kid and was innately curious about, I was observant of people, but now my desire to talk with them, to know them, to connect with them and make them feel seen is immense. Um, and I get to do that through my work, but I would also do that in my private life. Before we talk more about what you're doing now at Together and Women in Sport, I do want to talk a little bit about Jessica as a kid to get that understanding because you said at the time of making this pivot to the Players' Tribune and then ultimately two together that you had a vested interest in sport. But was that nurtured in you from a young age? What was life like for you growing up? I grew up in a really small town in Kentucky. It's not a place where many people leave and Beyond high school, there's not much of a path unless someone has, again, made it visible and, and sort of invested in you and made it known that that could be your journey beyond just your primary education. It's a pretty simple place. And it's a place where, you know, if New York and LA are places where when you meet someone, you ask them like, well, what do you do? Where I'm from is a place where you ask people how they are. It's actually really rude to ask, what do you do where I'm from? So I grew up with the sort of innate um, trait to pay attention to the people around me and make sure they're okay. Um, I started playing sports at the age of four. My dad and my mom both greatly invested in my twin sister. And I, um, I remember my dad we played basketball and softball, t-ball at that age, would put my twin sister and I on either side of the tee. And that's how I learned to like swing and bat left-handed because we would fight over who got to bat first. So we would just bat at the same time. Um, I don't remember much of my early life and certainly middle school and high school life without either like a cassette player or CD player Walkman in my hand and a basketball or softball or glove on my other hand. Like those two things are just... Um, so ingrained in me. And I remember being 13 in 1996, which were those really incredible summer Olympic games held in Atlanta. 
and having this very sort of transformative, informative experience of watching, in particular, all the incredible American athletes dominate that summer. And it was the softball team, the soccer team, the basketball team, the gymnastics team. That was a fantastic four. Like watching all of them win gold and dominate. And then the WNBA was announced. And it was like, oh, we have a fir like first of its kind professional women's basketball league outside of the ABL and others that come before it, like backed by the NBA. And it just felt like this big moment for a one, like a young girl like me who finally had maybe a future in sport. If I was a better athlete, I probably would have. So that was a very formative experience, but it was also happening at the same time where there's a swell of girl power happening in popular culture. So I also remember like in the music side, like there was Lilith Fair, there was Riot Girl, there was the Spice Girls and Girl Power. There was like, like, and then the rise of like Missy Elliott and Lauren Hill and what was happening in hip hop and R&B. And I was just like, wow, like women are it. I, I don't know what that means because I'm only 13, but like I, I was so inspired by the generation, maybe two generations before me who created and laid a path that up until that point, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't see an opportunity to get outside of my small town. Um, and from then on, it was, I knew I would leave. I knew I wanted to tell stories. I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what lane that would be in. But I also had the fortune of having a supportive family who knew that staying in Paducah, Kentucky was not going to satisfy me. It sounds like you had your own Jenna Rink moment in Paducah, Kentucky. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so going from that, how are you culture to then coming to New York City and immersing yourself headfirst, rollingstone.com, was it a culture shock for you? Yes and no. In some ways, I remember the first time I visited New York City. It was also the first time I ever got on a plane, which is wild to say. That is um, wild. Wild. Uh, we drive where I'm from. We don't. We are not a flying <laughs> people. I I landed in New York and I was like, this is it. This is where I want to be. I had dreamed of living there, and when I got there, it felt right. Like the place felt right. What was sort of more of a culture shock for me, especially at a place like Rolling Stone, was, and maybe it was more my insecurity and less culture shock, was the people. I I, you know, there there weren't many others. With my background, I went to a state school. I was surrounded by people who came from family that had worked in media and industry and had connections, right? Or who went to an Ivy League school or just had different privilege and opportunity than I did. So there was a little bit of um, inferiority complex more than anything. And I, I wouldn't call it culture shock. Um, just am I good enough to be here? Like one of these is not like the other. And it was me. So... I had to really work to develop self-confidence, which now looking back, and I just think about like that 21-year-old kid, that 20-year-old kid um, feels normal because in your 20s, it's like your second adolescence, right? Like that's, that's, I think everyone goes through that and maybe it continues throughout the course of your life. But um, I had that confidence going into that role. But as soon as I got into it, I was like, am I, do I fit here? Yeah. So that that was the big that was a big transition for me. And that's so understandable that 
you felt that way coming in to such a big opportunity, knowing your backstory up until this point. When you say that there was a need for you to develop self-confidence, where did you garner that from? How did you strengthen that muscle, so to speak? I think it comes with reps a little bit. I also think it comes with the people you surround yourself with. Um, I also think it comes with time. I'm sure you find this to be true. The older you get, sort of those things that you worry about and those insecurities you have just sort of fall off a little bit like leaves, you know, and you're just like, I'm not carrying that weight anymore. I've lived enough life to know that this, this thing will be okay or this problem or this path will solve itself or reveal itself. Like life is going to happen and I will be okay because I know how to navigate it now. Um, but reps to me are really important. I mean, in that role in particular at that age, surrounded by these people who seem so experienced and so smart and so funny and so, you know, charming and all the sort of like the social skills they had that I didn't and being able to navigate a place like Rolling Stone or a city like New York. And I just didn't know. I was just like dropped into the pool. I, it, I needed a lot. Of, there were a lot of firsts that happened for me. And after firsts and seconds and thirds and fourths, you start to find your rhythm and your groove and you start to discover like what you're really good at and the things that maybe you're not as good at. And you lean into those sort of superpowers that you have and you're not trying to be every single superpower at once. You just, you know, you know what you have to offer and you're confident in what you have to offer. Again, it takes time. And then you find that people tend to pour into you around those things. Um, I was fortunate enough to have an editor at that age um, and in that role who would literally wheel a chair over next to him and his desk and we would edit stories together, like line by line, comma by comma, paragraph by paragraph. So I learned not only how to tell a story, but how to construct and really build a story. And it made me ultimately a better storyteller in the long run. But if it weren't for him seeing something in me, and knowing that I could add value to even a conversation like that one, which is relatively small in scale, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would be the same person. I was very, very lucky to have that at a young age. It's special to be able to reflect on that mentorship experience and how beneficial it was for you to then move forward and know that you have the opportunity to be that type of individual for others younger in the field coming up is it not it's amazing and i also just think of, about privilege and power and i firmly believe at least in my position as a storyteller and now as sort of a co-founder of a company that's impacting the world i mean what good is my power my privilege if i don't give it away to people like, what's the saying? What use is it when you take the elevator up if you don't send it back down? Because <laughs> there's no, what's the point? Like, it doesn't mean anything. And because I was invested in not just by one person, multiple people over the course of my life and my career, I see it as a responsibility to do that to other people, especially people who don't have the privilege that I have in this world. I think it's critical. Yeah. Reflecting on those early years, I don't want to call it a mistake, but do you have a story or a takeaway of a moment that perhaps you made an error that at the time felt catastrophic? 
I want to come back to that one. I need to think about that one. Okay. Marinate on that. I'll tell you a story while you think about it. So when I was at Self Magazine, we did a package leading up to the Olympics. I believe this must have been the 2016 Olympics. I'm like, (laughs) my years are all a blur now after COVID, but leading up to the 16 Olympic Games, and there was a line that somehow made it into the print magazine that insinuated that one of the athletes we featured lifted weights, I want to say like six days a week instead of five days a week. It wasn't a big It wasn't a large error, but it was an error. And this athlete also happened to be the only athlete that we didn't show her face. She was in a sport that, um, like, she just had the most beautiful, strong back. And the photos of her, like, from behind doing her sport were just stunning. And that's what we went with. And so I'll never forget the call I got from the entertainment director at the time basically telling me that I had royally messed up. She couldn't believe that I had done X and Y. And really this frustration was coming from the fact that the entertainment director had been contacted by this athlete and the athlete was upset. And I remember going into the office that day and thinking like, this is it. Like, this is how I lose my job. I can't believe that this whole thing happened. And in retrospect, again, not a big error, but I tell this story. And that's why I ask this question of you, because I look back on that experience as, as you put it, a true rep. Like that was a moment where I had to experience what it felt like to disappoint someone higher up than me navigate their feedback and their criticism based on feedback and criticism that they received from someone else and also worry about what it would be like if I were to lose my job that day, which ultimately I don't need to to tell you, but that's what ultimately ended up happening months later when self folded. I love that story for so many reasons because I, as you were telling that story, I could feel that anxiety, <laughs> which means- oh, yeah. I've a thousand percent been there and I, (laughs) I don't know if it's like one massive mistake or one that rises to the top, but a lot of micro mistakes like that, that felt really, really big in the moment. And the ones that I'm thinking of, and if a specific, like really specific one rises to the top, I'll, I'll come back to it and lean into it. But it, it comes down to something very similar that you're talking about right now, which I think goes back to like my unconscious bias had to do with like descriptions and representations Mm -hmm. and especially around women and in particular women's sports which you know when I did transition from music to sports like I knew a lot about sports because I was a fan of sports and I played sports but I I didn't know all like the way a super fan or someone that did this for a living had to know about sports and there was a real learning curve and what was happening and happens in particular in women's sports and this is again a broader lesson but I feel your anxiety around decision-making, what tends to happen, especially in a sport like women's basketball, for example, is we center the more feminine, quote-unquote, attractive, um, maybe straightish appearing white basketball player versus, you know, the real women who maybe dominate that league because it's predominantly Black and predominantly queer. And that's because they've been deemed unmarketable. And therefore, there are just certain women who tend to be on magazine covers, who tend to get this like talking head spots, who tend to be interviewed more than others. And that's clearly the bias that's happening in the media. But I remember coming into 
the sports sector and gravitating towards those women because they were available to me and I, they were easy to get a hold. And I just, they were there and you know them and you set, you, they start, you center them in stories and you learn very quickly if you're paying attention, not just to the sports, but like the women's sports, but to culture that we were centering the wrong people the people that needed to be centered and especially having certain conversations in the women's sports space were black and queer women because they were the ones that had been grossly marginalized and should have been centered. And not just like in sport, but in culture, that's true. Women's sports is ground zero for every ism. And so I, I don't remember it being, there's been a series of mistakes like the one that you're describing, but I remember the theme of them is a unlearning of unconscious bias and being very, very, very mindful about who tells these stories, what stories we're telling, who's the storyteller through which these stories are told, mm. and how do you better represent the communities that you know ultimately create this space um, through through that storytelling. And it was it's been a big, not learning necessarily, but a really gratifying journey. Yeah, especially to be at the forefront of and and to have that opportunity to help others let's say better understand maybe their unconscious bias so that you can further along the mission of the specific publication or the outlet that you are working on and then also of course to better yourself right right and it's even those micro things like you mentioned like showing this athlete's back because it's beautiful, right? And you want to show that because we don't often celebrate the physicality of a woman's body, especially as an athlete. We're trying to shrink them. We're trying to feminize them. We're trying to do all these things. Right. And you think that you're doing a great thing, but by not showing her face, you're making her less visible. I mean, that's it's these layers of decision-making that you you have to take into account and, and every single one matters. So that learning... And the anxiety of learning through that and being very intentional about your decision making is, again, it's been a really rich experience, but one that's also critical because, like I said, these women have been so marginalized and depowered um, that we have the opportunity to pull them into the center and empower them. Yeah. I mean, to your point about uh, the women in the WNBA and their visibility, I feel lucky and, and grateful that I've had the opportunity to talk to so many WNBA players for the show, ranging from Neko Gwumake and Dee Dee Richards to I sat down with Kelsey Plum yesterday. And I I will say that I think there is a really beautiful transition happening right now, large in part because of what outlets like Together are doing to show the breath of the athlete, to show what it is that's actually happening instead of, you know, just the random every 18 months woman on the cover of Women's Health magazine that happens to play sport. It's so fascinating to see the shift in sport broadly. And then I'll talk about women's sports specifically, but for sure. It, yeah. Around 2014, 2015, what I'll call like this athlete empowerment movement happened. And it was really just the recognition that these athletes come off adrenalized performances and then they have a microphone in their face and they have to answer questions about how they performed or didn't perform or 
if you're LeBron, you're getting asked about NBA's relationship with China. And like, you're just like, you have to answer for anything and everything at all times. And I can just imagine the tension and the fraught relationship that's built between or built up over time between traditional media and athletes. Athletes as a whole are just sort of considered assets to be traded and discarded and bedded on over time, despite the fact that they are some of the most culturally powerful and influential people in our world. So we've dehumanized them for so long. What I love about this sort of movement that's happened and through places like the Players' Tribune or Uninterrupted and others is um, you give them a space to tell their whole story in a way that feels authentic to them because in the end, their byline is on it. Um, you get to know them and they can have significant, significant impact through their personal narrative in a way that traditional media sometimes doesn't allow for. And I think the two need to coexist. I think they're very symbiotic. They need to exist at the same time. But um, for women athletes, they almost, it's, it's different because they don't even have the visibility and they're not even respected as athletes. <laughs> so it's mission critical to tell their stories and make them visible. There is this very vicious cycle that happens in the women's sports space where of 100% of media coverage, only 4% of that is dedicated to women's sports. And that's not even to talk about the quality of that coverage, the depth of that coverage, the diversity of that coverage, nothing, where you can find it. If you're not telling these stories and you're not making these women visible, then it's incredibly hard to grow an audience or community around that or to put butts in seats or to drive viewership or any of those things that matter to teams, leagues, media companies, organizations. And if there's no audience and no community and no people in the stands and nobody watching, then brands don't invest in the space and then media companies don't tell the stories because there's no money for them to be had. It's, it's so vicious and we think every couple of years it'll break around a Women's World Cup or an Olympic year because women tend to dominate those summers. And we think maybe because there's a swell of investment and coverage then that it will sustain itself over time, but it doesn't, which is why Together exists. It's just to make these women visible every single day, to celebrate them, to dimensionalize them, to recognize the power in their skill and their athleticism and respect them as athletes, but also to embrace that they are incredible multi-hyphenates as women have to be, who move culture forward. And I say this so often, um, but I think it's incredibly true and hopefully changing over time, but there's this perception that women's sports has been behind and that's because we view sports through a male lens and that goes back to visibility and media stuff. But there's this perception that women's sports has been behind. And I'm, I think to myself, knowing what I know about women, <laughs> women and women's sports has been so far ahead of culture that culture has had to catch up. And when you have play entities like, you know, together, just women's sports, um, when you do have a, a publication like GQ or other, like putting women on the front, like the cover, like it actually does matter. It needs to be more sustained, but it really does matter because it takes this sort of socially constructed norm that sports are male inherently and starts to center these women and just make it more of the norm. Hopefully we are at the tip of a spear and things are really changing. Yeah. And I think we see hints of that change as time goes on, right? I mean, prime example, the U.S. Women's National Team versus England sellout at Wembley when 65,000 tickets were sold 
like the day after they went on sale. And there was a surprise in that. But the the general theme from, let's say, media and maybe female-focused reporting advocates for women in sport was, it's been here. The demand has been here. Where, why have you been sleeping on this? Yes, it's been here. Also, women's sports fans are inherently digital. They're digitally native. They've had to be. They are here. They've, they've been underserved. They have been starved. It's not if you build it, they will come. It's like they're, they're here. So if you create um, if you create the stories and you make them visible, they'll consume them, they'll engage with them, they'll share them. Um, if you make the games available for broadcast, they will tune in, they will watch them. If you put like massive events in big arenas, same thing happened in the O2 arena with the women's boxing match, Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall in the UK in the last month, like sell out. Like it, that's women's boxing. It's not even women's soccer where we have like the crest on our chests and we suddenly become really patriotic. It's like, yeah. it is, if you, if, if you just do it, the audience is there. They've been waiting for it. What's been missing is the investment. And I don't mean just like financial investment, which is very true. I mean, the media and storytelling investment. It's, it's, those two things are critical to growing the overall category. And it, as you say, like sellout stadium Wembley is huge. It's a massive event because of that. Then Fox decided to broadcast it on their main channel, not on FS1. Like if, imagine if you made a conscious decision, if you had the power as a decision maker at a massive media organization to not broadcast an NWSL championship at 9 a.m. on the West Coast, right, which happened last year that was under consideration, and put it in prime time, not competing against another massive men's sporting event, what you could do for viewership on a major media network. And that just comes down to, again, I go back to conscious decision making. There are people in positions of power who can make this happen, who can change it. They just have to decide to invest. Cut the check, tell the story. taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsors. First up, my friends at Inside Tracker. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go the extra mile. And that relentless drive, well, it runs in your blood too. And that is why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's truly like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just head on over to insidetracker.com forward slash hurdle. Again, that is insidetracker.com forward slash hurdle. Also got to give some love to my friends at Element. That's L-M-N-T. Element makes great electrolytes with everything you need and nothing you don't. No gluten, no fillers, no other sketchy ingredients that are often found in conventional sports drinks that you grab off of the shelf at your bodega, your 7-Eleven, your drugstore. You get the idea. Anyway, 
I am obsessed with the salty, sweet deliciousness that is Element in so many wonderful flavors, ranging from citrus and raspberry to watermelon and one of my go-tos, orange. They've got a flavor for every taste, and it is so important to keep up with intaking electrolytes, not only during the warm summer months, but in the winter as well. And that's because electrolytes help you get to that ultimate place of hydration. In order to stay properly hydrated, you need to consume adequate electrolytes, and those electrolytes will help your nerve impulses fire, regulate fluid balance, help produce energy, and bonus, support strong bones. You've got to try Element today. It is my go-to and you won't regret it. Head on over to drinkelement.com. That's drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get a free sample pack with your purchase. Again, that's drinkelement.com slash hurdle. Let's circle back to you joining and helping as a co-founder to start together. Give us some of that origin story. Yeah, I had been working at the Players' Tribune for four and a half uh, years by then, about four years. And I got a call one, like early 2019 one day, asking if I would be willing to take a meeting on a potential new athlete, a women's athlete focused media company. And outside of running content at Players Tribune, my day-to-day focus or like at least what I would bring into a lot of conversations was insertion and reminding that we were also working with women athletes. We're not just entering male athletes and we would infuse that into our content strategy. So over the course of those four to five years, I had, um, the privilege to tell some of the greatest stories I think I've ever told in my life in partnership with really incredible women athletes. So I've had sort of built a reputation for being a storyteller and an ally in the space, um, knowing how to build brands and build companies around um, uh, tent poles and ideas and hypotheses and knowing like potential audience and consumer demand and having relationships with a lot of these women athletes directly. and. I took the call and it was about Alex Morgan and she was going into a world cup year. Like I said, this was 2019 mm-hmm. there. This is Alex's observation, which is true. You know, she watches, you know, LeBron James build uninterrupted in spring Hill. Derek Jeter has the players tribune. Kevin Durant builds his own venture company, 35 ventures. Steph Curry has unanimous media. There's just all these male athletes, they can build their own platforms and their own brands and their own venture and companies because the money and the investments are made available to them because their power and platform is so much bigger because they happen to be superstars because they're male athletes. And even despite like that sort of disruption of athlete-led storytelling, women were still kind of left in the margins. And she was tired of waiting for any one of them or traditional media to decide that women's stories were worth investing in consistently and telling. So she said, what are you like, let's fuck it. Let's go build it. And I remember the first big meeting with Alex in September of 2019. And we were in Los Angeles and we got, we got in this sort of co-working shared space and there was just a massive whiteboard 
And there was nothing on that board except brains in a room who knew that we wanted to build a media company, but that was it. So we asked over the course of a full day, like ourselves, what do we want this to be? Who do we want this to stand for? What is the voice of this brand? What is the tone of this brand? What are the qualities that our stories have? Like just who do we want to build this in partnership with? What other athletes do we want to bring into this? Like who are we representing? It's just such an inspiring, thoughtful, creative, collaborative conversation. And I remember leaving that room that day and getting on a plane to go back to New York and knowing that this was the right move for me, but more importantly, just feeling so excited by the impact that a brand like this one could have. Um, and then from there, it's like, okay, well, how do you build it? <laughs> There's, it's one thing to have an idea of what you want to make and then something else entirely to then go and make that thing and launch it into the world. Yeah, definitely. And so when you sat in there and you started to outline kind of the brand ethos, now when you are asked those questions, who are you reaching? What is your mission? What do you say? Our mission is to make women visible and give them their power back through storytelling. Who we reach every single day, I could, there's the technical answer, which is predominantly women 18 to 35 who have never had a brand like this probably exist for them before, who finally see themselves reflected back because we're telling stories that represent their own journey and maybe their own identities. Um, and But for me, I, I think this brand, and if you spend time with the content and certainly um, the mission and the voice, which has a bit of sort of an activist voice to it, um, we stand for anyone who hasn't felt seen who's been disempowered or who has been told that they weren't powerful. And um, we're taking those people, like I said earlier, from the margins and pulling them into the center and giving them their power back because women inherently move culture forward. When have you felt like that in your life, unseen? I mean, so many times. And that's to say I have a lot of privilege that others don't. I... To, to personalize it, I was, you know, growing up in this small town, I was, uh, I knew at a very young age, I was gay. And that was not a place where you wanted to be, especially at that time, the mid 90s, like you wanted to be out in a conservative town. So there was a lot of sort of like hiding of self and identity out of shame and fear, some fear, which was self-constructed, some fear, which was actually very real. So it took me a while to feel seen on a personal level, which was part of my journey. I've also been, and I'm sure you have too, and only in a room a lot mm -hmm. um, in the media industry is surrounded by men and oftentimes the only woman in the room. And I see one, they don't hear me when I talk, which isn't the case anymore, but for a long time, you know, I could say something and then the guy sitting next to me could say the same thing and he would be heard. And I'm like, I, I just said that thing. <laughs> like, I just said that thing. Or I would be the only woman in the room. I will never forget. This is actually a really funny story. I will never forget. I was working sort of like, I hate calling them war room styles, but you know what I mean when you're like covering a big event like the Grammys or the Super Bowl or whatever. And you have like Every, every employee is in the same space because you're like deploying and publishing a lot of content in real time. So I was in one of those spaces and I was in charge in that room. And 
someone came in, an executive came in, and it was sort of like my show, my event, my thing to run. And he knew that I was the one in charge. And he <laughs> asked me to order dinner for the entire team who were all men because he didn't know how to get on Seamless and just order a couple pizzas. And I remember, I think, like, feeling so undermined in my power and then thinking, well, the default for you, and you don't even realize you're doing it. You just think I know how to get things done. But the default for you is to turn to the only woman in the room and make sure she's servicing all the guys in the room and, and taking care of them, making sure they're fed, even though my job was to actually run the ship that night. And I, I, I felt really small in that space. And that's, it's such a specific and tiny example, right? There's bigger ones that I can think of in spaces I've been in where I didn't feel seen. Um, but even something like that, even when you are seen, but you're still undermined because you're a woman is um, infuriating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thank you for, for sharing that. You, you spoke about the, the whiteboard session with Alex, right? But how does it feel ultimately when you start to truly understand and get to a place where you are going to be working with so many women that represent a wide breadth of female athletes, some of the best in the best, Sue Bird, Chloe Kim, Simone. How did that feel for you? There are Avengers. These women are amazing. They are four of the greatest athletes in the world. I don't have to say four of the greatest women athletes in the world. They just are. But beyond that, they are incredible humans for, for all of sort of their shared greatness and accomplishments, which, you know, would take an hour's worth of conversation to go through. They have incredibly different lived experiences and POVs on the world too, and different personalities and expressions. And given what Together stands for, which is representation and visibility, to be able to take all of that sort of like lived experience and aspiration and dedication and commitment to the same thing. We all have the same thing that we're marching towards but all those different expressions and infuse it into the DNA of together has been wildly beyond my dreams. And the best part is they are all incredible thought partners and they are also all incredibly selfless. And I think that's, that's what you see happening with women generally. Like we know how to for, come together, form a collective, and move things forward for the betterment of everyone around us, and more importantly, for those that are coming behind us. And these four women embody that every single day in their life. They are first. They are all first of different kinds. They also understand what it means to break glass ceilings and then the cuts and the bruises that come with that, which we don't even consider sometimes. They are wildly creative and entertaining and they also just know the space they know what's missing so they know what um together needs to be what it needs to exemplify what it needs to consider and where it needs to show up and it's like just having focus group right it's like every single day they're they're just a focus group for where we should go they're a good litmus test for where this brand should go but they're just wildly creative thought partners and collaborators and 
champions, not just in the sense of sport accomplishment and winning, but like true champions for other people. And it's been a dream, honestly. When you say breaking glass ceilings and the ramifications of that, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I remember, I think in particular about Simone Manuel when I think about this, because for all of her accomplishments for being a first, I think about, there's this picture of Simone that her family has shown me that she's shown and the world has probably seen where she's this young girl in a swimming pool in Texas maybe six years old and she's smiling and excited because she's like, she loved it. She was also so good at it at such a young age, but she just loves swimming. What people don't see about that picture is she had been intentionally left off a swim team because other parents complained that she made the team and it was really, they were racist and she happened to be the only black swimmer and they didn't want a black swimmer on a team because their white daughter got left off. And when I think about Simone, in 2016, winning that gold medal and becoming a first, I think about what she represents to her broader community and how they've been left out of that space for generations and generations and what it must mean for her. But I also know what she had to go through to get there and the racist comments and the unintentionally racist questions she gets asked all the time, but also the, you know, sort of the weight on her shoulders to represent her entire community as we go through like social justice movements. And Mm. she has said herself, you know, you guys see the accomplishment and I break these glass ceilings and I'm a first, but what you don't see, because either I'm not asked or you're not thinking or you're not paying attention or you just don't know me is I am covered in cuts and bruises. And I have been for so long. And I think a lot about that as, as, it, as glorious and triumphant as it is to be a first, period. There is a long journey that goes into that one moment that we ultimately see. And when you are first and you break a glass ceiling, of course, because you're opening up for the people that behind you, the seconds and thirds that are coming, we don't think about the cuts and the bruises and the scrapes that come with that. And because of her... And being an empathetic storyteller, now I, that's almost where my mind goes first. It's like, wow, what did you have to go through to get there? Also, top of mind, the boundaries that are set as a result of breaking that glass ceiling and recognizing what it is that these women need so that they can continue on in their pursuit of greatness while also protecting their mental health and their needs, right? I remember... Uh, Simone is actually one of the few people that I've ever tried to message that I got a notification that she only allows certain people to message her, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so you see the, you know, parameters that athletes are putting, not just on, you know, the boundary between their personal and professional life, but then also when it comes to social media and beyond, just so that they can go on living a life that brings them joy, that brings them that sense of contentment and enables them to focus on the things that they feel are to be really important. Yeah. And also women athletes, Sue has said this before, they aren't really afforded the luxury of shutting up and dribbling, right? They, they can't just show up and perform and compete and do their job because Number one, we don't actually respect them as athletes, right? We don't respect women's sports in the way that we should. So 
they have to advocate for themselves. They have to advocate for their communities. They have to think about the next generation. They're fighting for equal pay. They're fighting for visibility. Like their day job may be an athlete, but their full-time job is almost as an activist. And especially considering most of the communities that they come from, there's a heavy emphasis on representation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because you are a public figure, and maybe not as public as you could be because of the inequities and visibility, but because you are a public figure, people also think they have access to you. Yeah. And I think about just the level of mental fortitude you have to have to compete at that level in the first place. And then you have to think about and consider all these other things because you're fighting for so much more for yourself, but also for your teammates, but also for the women coming behind you. And then you're being asked questions about social justice and pay inequity and all the isms and the issues that exist in the space. You can't even focus on your sport. And then you're like all of us when you're on social media and you have this massive platform, therefore people think they have access to you, even though they don't. It's, it, it's, it's unhealthy. It's wild. It's, um, it's taken them to a place where they have to be protective and they also have to treat their brain like they treat their body, right? We, we focus so much on athletes' body and less so their mental well-being. Um, I think for women athletes, it's incredibly important to give them that space and that support considering all the other sort of competing and fighting they have to do outside of the sports arena. Like it's just, just um, it's wild. And Chloe Kim talks about this too. She's... You know, especially I go back to being first and representing communities. I mean, there's a lot of women's sports is ground zero for everyism. There's a lot of racism and hate that's targeted towards her, especially as what we see happening in culture, the rise of um, AAPI hate and crime. She, she's seeing that in her DMs, you know, and it's just like, wow, it's um, you can't you can't separate the, the personal and the professional truly for them because the stakes are so high. It's advantageous for them to be visible and to be advocating for these things because it's bigger than them. But it's also, you know, a really vulnerable and probably lonely place to be into. And that's a place that so many of the people that whether you're, you know, sending those horrible messages or you're just scrolling through during a break in your workday you're not thinking about putting yourself in that position, putting yourself in their shoes and thinking of the the things that they have to navigate through that lens, right? And so it makes it easier more often than not to speak and say things without taking that time to consciously think about that and, again, to put yourself in their shoes. Now, what I find so impressive about you is not just – your, you know, fandom of sport and your advocacy for women in sport specifically, but also your affinity to empower everyone to be a storyteller and your belief that that is possible. When you come down to it, how does Jess take care of Jess? <laughs> uh, she drinks whiskey. Yes. Do you have a favorite right now? I am a huge fan of Willet Rye and Pikesville Rye. I'm a big rye girl if I'm going to okay. drink Okay. Okay. I'm a bourbon girl, but I'm on a Four Roses small batch kick for the last few months. Listen, Whole Foods doesn't have my Willet or my Pikesville, so I get the Four Roses small batch. 
Wait, where are you in LA? Yeah, I'm in Playa Vista. Okay, I was going to say, because you know that I'm not walking to Whole Foods to buy bourbon in New York City. <laughs> it's across the street, so it's easy. <laughs> okay, so we're sipping whiskey. What else are we doing? I have to, I have a lot of adrenaline because of my stress, so I, I have to exercise. I, I'm also a very competitive person, so when I exercise, it helps me to have some sort of goal in mind, which is why I'm now you know, wanting to compete as an amateur bo boxer, which is probably not the smartest decision I've ever made. Um, I have a great community um, and I love spending time with my people and talking about the space that I'm in and hearing about the space that they're in and laughing for hours. I'm actually really energized by other people and their energy. And when I need to protect my space or give back or feed my soul, people tend to do that for me. So um, my decompression is a happy hour, <laughs> probably, um, a sweat session. I also read and consume a lot of things that have nothing to do with sports. So words inspire me and settle me. And you will find me probably lost in a book or like a New Yorker somewhere. Mm -hmm. I, uh, again, really appreciated your, your openness talking about your experience as a gay woman. And when you say community, not only with, you know, the work that you're doing, citing the fact that so many women, not just in the WNBA, but of course, throughout sport, um, share that in common. How does it feel for you now to be a part of this overwhelming community? Uh, that idea that if, sometimes to be her, you need to see her like you're surrounded by her now. So how does it feel these days for you knowing that compared to where you came from? Oh, I feel like I have my people. Yeah. I feel settled. It's such a different existence. It's, it actually feels so wild. It, like the 15 year old in Kentucky, it's almost like she didn't happen. Like it's just, it's been, it's so wildly different from that time. Um, yeah, I certainly feel seen. I, I, it's, it's gotten to a point where I don't even think of, I don't describe myself as a gay woman, right? I just describe myself. And but when I was growing up, that was the big label that I was so afraid of. And now it's just a, another detail about myself yeah. because I'm surrounded by so many people who are like me. I'm comfortable with my skin. Um, I have that community but also I get to make that community visible every single day. And it goes back to why I do what I do. There is a power and a privilege in my position. And what I love about that is I get to give it back to the people that don't have it. And yes, for me, it was probably as a young queer woman in Kentucky. And for other people, it might be something different. And I get to listen and pay attention and use myself, my, you know, together um, as sort of a conduit to make sure that that visibility exists. Because when I was growing up as a gay woman, it didn't in the mid 90s. I love all of the I get to's within your responses. What, uh, what excites you right now, Jess? This, literally <laughs> this, this conversation, I wake up every single day and I get to make micro decisions and sometimes really big decisions that hopefully impact the world and change the world and the culture that we exist in. Um, but I also, I get to do it with such an incredible team. I mean, I'm here talking about 
together as one person, but we are an incredible 18 person, mostly women identifying team who are some of the smartest and coolest and most wonderful and creatively talented people I've ever met in my life. And that feels like my family. So I not, not only do I get to wake up every single day and, you know, change the world through story, I get to do it with my people. And I get to do it with Alex and Sue and Chloe and Simone. And that is just wild to me. What a privilege position to be in, you know, not to say that it's not hard at times, but I, this literally being in this moment and being able to talk about it with you inspires and excites me. Aside from more representation within the media, what else do you hope for coverage of women's sport going forward? I think we've all been existing on crumbs for so long. It's it's sort of what I mentioned earlier. It's cut the check and tell the story. I think I want to see not just more, but specific types of more. I want to see really intentional storytelling. I want when there's a, you know, NWSL draft happening to there for there to be like a pre-show that breaks down the draft class and like who's going one and like what's ha- like if there's just not even enough. It's not just the the quantity of story it's the type and quality of story and I think if the goal is to sort of undo that social construct that we view sports through a male lens the only way we can do that is to reinvest and be consistent in the volume and the quality and the diversity of women's sports stories that we tell every single day and um, it comes with intentional decision making Um, The beautiful thing that's happening right now is we don't have to rely on sort of the larger, more traditional media organizations to do that. Mm -hmm. What also inspires me is outside of Together, you have other women's sports focused brands that exist and are increasing. You have Just Women's Sports, you have Highlight Her, you have The Gist, you have a lot of like smaller but hyper-focused women's sports newsletters that exist every single day. You have athletes coming into their own power on their own social platforms, growing their own communities and monetizing against it. The top 10 NIL athletes, what is it, seven of them are women? Hmm. And that's with no like massive media organization coming behind them except for maybe Paige Beckers. Like it is so exciting for me to see because the changes has been happening for on the grassroots level for so long and that again that's where i say like people have been here like it's it's not like we're creating a new space like this space has been existing and just waiting just waiting for the right time and culture is catching up we're having the necessary social conversations social justice conversations that we need to have we're focused on outside of sport and culture right sizing the pay inequity and um, opportunity for women in the workplace. We are, it, it's sort of like a, the groundswell and the sort of the perfect storm of all the right things happening at the right time. But the most important thing is we're not waiting for legacy media companies to decide to invest. They have a power and they have massive power and they could change it and pour like a lot of fuel on that fire. But these women, especially who are starting their own news media organizations or consumer-facing brands, who are creating their own merch and selling it to women's sports fans, these athletes who are creating their own platforms on their social channels or with a company like Together have decided to take it into their own hands and build something so big and so cool and so powerful 
that everyone else is going to be forced to follow. Brands are going to follow. Large media organizations are going to have to follow because it's going to be undeniable. Your excitement is contagious. And we love a Paige Becker's mention because I am a University of Connecticut alumni. <laughs> oh, I'm a Lady Vols fan. Is this where oh. we... Oh, no. <laughs> Good thing we're coming to a close here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as I wind down here, a question I ask everyone that comes on the show, we know you no longer feel like that 15-year-old in Kentucky these days. But when you look in the mirror, Jess, who is it that you see looking back at you? I do. I actually see that young girl. I don't, I don't see that life anymore because it's so far from my reality. But I have, especially the work that I do now, I have a lot of full circle moments. A lot of, can you, can you believe this? Like I went to the White House with Megan Rapino when she got her Presidential Medal of Freedom. And I'm thinking about that girl who was watching the 96th Olympic team or the 99ers and just being so insp- and like, what that is my life now. And I'm outside of, I get to tell those stories that were so formative for me. I'm a part of a bigger community um, that I at once felt very isolated from or didn't think that it existed. And now it's here. So when I when I look at that mirror and I see that girl, I think, wow, a lot has changed. But I also kind of think she just needed to let life happen. I was so worried about what would be next and creating a path and following a plan and how do I get to Rolling Stone? And then from there, what do I do? Cause I peaked at 21 and like, what happens now? Where do I go? And who am I? And who am I dating? What's, who can I say this? To? Like, just let life happen. And you can't answer the, you can't answer the questions. Life has to answer them for you. Let life happen. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you because we've dropped a few pretty big names over the last hour. Is there anyone that you've met that you just completely geeked out and lost your shit with? I mean, there's some like legends in sport. Like I, I met Cynthia Cooper, but it wasn't like this big moment. It was just like, holy shit, that's Cynthia Cooper. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, as I asked that question, like it wouldn't be odd if you did, but I also do feel like you get to a certain place in your career, at least this is where I am. And I'd be curious if you feel the same, that it's like just a shared respect more than a point where I'm like, oh, I can't believe I'm in this situation. Like, yes, maybe a little bit of that. And also like I've worked hard to be in this situation and I feel fortunate to be in your company instead of just completely like I'm going to lose my shit. There's a lot of rooms that I get to be in with not just powerful women in sport, but powerful women in culture. Yeah. And the people who take me like aback are more the sort of like cultural icons who have changed the landscape for all of us, including mm. sport. So most recently, an example that comes to mind because I do love words and because I lean towards culture when I'm thinking about this question I was in the same space and got to meet Roxanne Gay. And mm. it was such, 
I don't even remember what I said and not because I was like nervous or anything. Just like it was one of those moments where it was like, I have read your words and consumed your ideology. And so much of that inspires me and has infused into some of the work that I do. And so many of the women athletes I work with love your work and connect with you, including Megan Rapinoe. And it was just sort of this moment where it's like, I am in a position to be in the same room as now um, Roxanne Gay, who is impacting culture in a shared but very different way. And th those moments to me are really surreal. Definitely, definitely. Well, I'm so glad again that we were able to carve out the time for this before I let you go. One final question. You have an opportunity right now, Jess, to offer yourself a piece of advice back when you knew that you were ready to leave the music space. You were ready to pivot a bit and continue telling stories in a different way. Knowing what you know now, what do you say to yourself back then during that hurdle moment? Jump. Jump. Do it. You know that your gut is your compass. You already know. You feel it in your bones. You will not be satisfied unless you do this thing because that's who you are. You live and die by your gut. So take that chance. There is no such thing as there's no such thing as failure. There's only lessons. No such thing as failure, only lessons. Again, so glad that we were able to make this happen. Jess, how do the hurdlers follow along with you? How do they keep up with you? How do they keep up with together? Give me the details. Follow together on all your favorite social platforms, uh, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. We'll see what happens there. We're all there. Please follow <laughs> YouTube, follow, subscribe, like, engage, share, all of those things. And together, or at least for me specifically, you'll find me mostly on Instagram at Jess M. Robertson. And make sure that you are spelling together, right? How do they spell together? It's together with an X. So T-O-G-E-T-H-X-R beautiful. I will say I, I checked out the YouTube in preparation for this and I feel as though I could watch the Together YouTube for at least 72 hours straight. Please go do that right now. <laughs> Amazing. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>